tonight to the gospel of Mark. I've been doing a series on Mark's gospel and we're in chapter four and we're not moving very fast, but you know what? I don't really care because I'd rather spend time digging into this beautiful gospel. You know, Kent Hughes shares um, a story that was reprinted from Moody Monthly. It was first published in 1926. So this is not a new story. And it's really a story about a man by the name of Ira Sankey. How many have ever heard of that name, Ira Sankey? Okay, I figured most of us didn't know who he is. Ira Sankey was actually a a vocalist, a beautiful singer, who actually ministered with a guy by the name of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was what we would consider the Billy Graham of his generation. So Ira Sankey was... uh, D.L. Moody's Beverly Shea. Okay, is everybody getting a picture? So he he was, in his day, in the 19th century, the later part of the 19th century, the last part of the 1800s, he was a very famous person in the United States. He was known internationally. The story shared was simply that Moody and Sankey began their partnership doing ministry in 1870, when Moody heard him sing, when Moody heard Sankey sing at a Sunday school convention, there were big things in those days, and their relationship continued now for the next 25 years. And it really took off in 1873 when the two of them were ministering in the UK, and they had crusades there in Edinburgh and Glasgow and London. And by the time they came back to the United States in 1875, like these guys were literally international figures. And so it was Christmas Eve, 1875. Sankey's traveling by steamboat up the Delaware River. It's a beautiful starlit night. And many passengers on the deck, of course, recognize who he is. And they plead with him, please, Mr. Sankey, would you mind singing? And so, you know, he's, he's leaning against the great funnel of the steamship. He's gazing at the stars in silent prayer. He consents and he decides he's about to sing a Christmas carol when he feels deeply compelled to sing a hymn by William Bratbury entitled, Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us. There was a deep stillness as his baritone voice floated across the quiet river that Christmas Eve. And when he had finished the song, people were visibly moved. A man stepped from the shadows and said, Mr. Sankey, did you ever serve in the Union Army? Mr. Sankey said, yeah, I did. Now, I enlisted in 1860. You have to remember, between 1860 and 1865 is the period of the American Civil War. And so he fought on the Union side. And he said, well, let me ask you a question, Mr. Sankey. Can you remember if you were doing picket duty on a bright moonlight night in 1862? He said, yeah, I I, I probably was doing that. And uh, he's quite surprised by the question, actually. He said, well, the man said to him, well, so did I. But I was serving in the Confederate Army, which was the the Southern Army, which was fighting with the Union Army. And he said, when I saw you standing at your post, I raised my musket and I took aim. I was standing in the shadow just like I was tonight, completely concealed, while you were standing in the full light of the moon. And at that instant, just as a moment ago, you raised your eyes to heaven and you began to sing. And I said to myself, I'll let him sing the song to the end and then I'll shoot him. But the song you sang then was the song you sang just now. How many think it's a little serendipitous that, you know, he decides to sing the same song he sang that night? And he said, I heard the word so perfectly. We are thine, do thou befriend us, be thou the guardian of our way. 
Those words stirred up such deep memories inside of me because I were now reflecting back to the fact that my mother, a godly woman, used to sing that very song. And she had sung it many times to me. And he said, when you finished your song, it was impossible for me to take aim again. I thought, the Lord who's able to save that man from certain death must surely be great and mighty. And my arm of its own accord dropped limp to my side. How many think that was just an amazing act of God's providence to spare the life of this beautiful uh, singer who later on God used in a very profound and powerful way. And it just goes to show you that God's providential protection is upon our lives. Many times we see God doing things that we're not even aware of. I think we take a lot of things for granted. And yet here we have this beautiful story, God revealing to Sankey that you were unaware that there was a night you could have been taken away, but I spared you. Now, after finished teaching here in Mark's gospel chapter four, Jesus had been teaching these parables and he commands his disciples to leave the western side of the Sea of Galilee. See, the western side was where most of the Jewish people were living. He was ministering to people of Jewish background. And Jesus said to them in verse 35, that's what we're going to look at, let's go to the other side. The other side is actually quite steep. There's... Uh, the Golan Heights are up there. There's a precipice we're going to read next week. Lord willing, I'll t speak on the story of Jesus ministering to a Gadarene or the Gerasenes, however uh, the writer suggests their names. And uh, they're going to move over to minister to the other side of the lake where primarily it's a Gentile audience. Let's pick up the story here in Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. That day when evening came, there we're, we're getting the setting. Jesus now has been teaching all day. I think that's important to understand the context of the story. He's been at it. He's been speaking. You know, a lot of people don't realize, you know, if you're teaching all day, it's, it's a wearying process. How many here just happen to be a school teacher? Is that your vocation, your school teacher? None of you? Okay. Uh, actually, it's quite demanding work. You're pouring out, you know, and uh, if you ever try doing this, public speaking, you'll find out it takes a lot more energy than you realize. Uh, you know, they actually equate one sermon to the equivalent of eight physical hours of work. One sermon. So it's a lot more demanding than people understand. So Jesus was tired. That's the point. And you're going to see what happens here. He says to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. So obviously, Jesus had been teaching in a boat. It was probably the great crowd was before him. He had pressed upon him. He had gotten into a boat, moved out to the sea. It creates a natural amphitheater. He's speaking to the crowds. Then he says to his disciples, let's go to the other side. They pick him up in this little boat, and they get into another boat, and some of us who have had the privilege of going to Israel, we actually, there's a museum. They actually found a boat that was about 2,000 years old. They've resurrected it. And it's actually a kind of a fisher's boat. And it's kind of the boat that probably Jesus and his disciples are in. It can seat up to 15 people. So there's 12 disciples plus Jesus, 13. It gives you a good idea of the size of that boat. It says... They took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. Now, it's interesting. This story is repeated both in Matthew and Luke's gospel. They're called synoptics because they kind of compare. They're, they're kind of similar in their chronological expression of what Jesus is doing. But here we notice something interesting. Only Mark leaves this little interesting insight. 
There were other boats with him. So it wasn't just Jesus in the boat. So many times, and I've read this story, I haven't picked up on this little expression. It wasn't just Jesus, the disciples in a boat. There were other people, other followers, other people listening who wanted to be with Jesus on the other side. So they too joined him by getting in other boats and began to move across the lake. So now we're getting a broader picture of what's about to happen. This isn't just about the disciples. This is about many other people who are going to be impacted by what's about to happen. The next verse says, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Now, if you've ever been in a boat and you've had experiences with boat and waves and wind and, and uh, you know, the plunging down and, and the, the rolling and the movement, these guys, some of them were professional fishermen and they recognized that this was a real situation of absolute jeopardy. This is not a make-believe story. This is a real crisis. They were concerned about their very lives. It says there, Jesus now was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Now, can you imagine, you know, night is falling. You're in the boat. The wind comes. And we're going to find out in a moment how severe that wind was. Jesus is sleeping through the whole thing. Now, that tells me one thing. He had to be extremely exhausted. How many, you know, you're not going to sleep through something like this. And I can just see those disciples as water's pouring into the boat, and they're trying to bail water out, and they're screaming at each other. And Jesus is unaffected by everything that's going on around him. You know, that's an amazing thing. We're getting a picture here of the humanity of Jesus, the fact that he could be that tired, that he could sleep through this amazing crisis, a crisis even in his own life, and he was totally unaware of it. It says, the disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? We'll come back to how they talked to him there. He got up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, I think it's interesting. The last verse, verse 41 says this, they were terrified. Matter of fact, I was looking this up in the Greek language, and it's interesting. You know, there isn't a word for terrified. That's a translator's option. It says, they feared, feared greatly. It's, it's, literally, that's what happened. They feared, they feared greatly. It's, it's trying to explain to us that as afraid as they were in the storm, and they were afraid in the storm. They thought they were going to die. After the storm settles down, it says they were even more terrified. That's an interesting thought. It says they were even more terrified and asked each other, who is this? They were scared of Jesus. They were terrified of Jesus. Even the wind and the waves obey him. That's why they were terrified of him. They said, who is this person? Okay, now, you have to understand that you and I are looking at the story from hindsight. How many know you're always smarter looking at things from a historical perspective? You know, you're looking back at something. You know the story. How many know we're not quite as smart when we're in the story? Because some of us are living our lives and we're saying we're not quite as smart when we're experiencing the crisis. Isn't that true? And we look at the story with a knowledge that Jesus, especially if we're a confessing Christian, we believe that Jesus is whom? He's not only a man, but he's whom? He's God in the flesh, but no Jewish person in the moment, at that moment, believed that God would be in the flesh. 
As a matter of fact, all of my studies, and I wrote a significant work on the expectation of Jewish people regarding the coming of the Messiah. There was not one Jewish person believed that God would come in the flesh. That's not what they believed about the Messiah. So you can imagine when this person starts talking to the storm, this is blowing their minds, and you're going to see why as we continue this journey of looking at this text of Scripture. So here in this event in the life and ministry of Jesus with his disciples, we discover four pictures of a sequence of events that deeply impact their lives and challenge them regarding their own understanding as to the nature and the character of Jesus Christ. And I think what is true of the early disciples is equally true of us. How in the world do we handle crisis? How many here say, you know what, crisis doesn't really bother me, I usually handle it pretty good. Or do you say, you know, when crisis comes, I usually fall apart, and uh, I usually, you know, finally get my equilibrium somewhere down the road. You know, it's, it's amazing. Crisis is an amazing revealer of the true condition of our soul. Isn't that right? And sometimes we're surprised. <coughs> Excuse me. We do better in crisis than we thought we would. You know, sometimes we'll make statements like, I don't think I could ever experience that. And then later on, God allows us to go through something similar to that, and we're amazed that God gives us the grace to handle that experience. Isn't that true? And then there are other times in our lives where we think, hey, I'm up for this, and the crisis comes, and we're totally blown away, and we're not up for it, and we fail miserably, and if we had a report card, we'd probably get an F on it, because we just didn't do well in that crisis. We just came unraveled, you know, and we were probably not the example of what a Christian should be in the middle of crisis. So how do we handle it, not only crisis, but then how do we handle when God intervenes into our lives? We're going to look at that. And then finally, do we really think, do we really understand who Jesus really is? Do we really get an understanding of his authority? And actually, let me say it to this way, you know, we can have a hypothetical view of his authority, but do we really understand the authority that he has over each of us? Do we really recognize him as Lord in our lives? And I think this story is going to really bring all of these things to bear. So I want to look at these elements that impact our understanding of Jesus. And the first one is in the time of crisis. You know, the question that is usually raised in our crisis is, why does God allow this to happen? See, why, why God? I don't understand. If you're such a loving person, why do you let this happen in my life? Why, why this pain? Why this sorrow? Why this difficulty? Why are you letting this happen? I mean, haven't I done everything you've asked me to do? Aren't I, aren't I trying to live for you? Aren't I, aren't I obedient to your will and purposes? Listen, these disciples were actually doing what Jesus told them to do. They were just crossing the Sea of Galilee because Jesus told them to do it. They were just obeying. They weren't ready for this. They didn't anticipate this. And sometimes we feel that way. God, I'm minding my own business. I'm serving you. I'm doing good. And all of a sudden, my world is coming apart. What in the world's going on? What did I do? I think it's in our most difficult and uncertain moments of life that we discover exactly where we're placing our trust. Isn't that true? Sometimes we find out we're really placing our trust in ourselves. Sometimes we're placing our trust in what life can bring for us. We're placing our trust in the kind of securities that we've tried to work at so diligently to provide for ourselves, to have some sort of a security and a comfort. But all of a sudden, God can allow crisis to shatter all of that in our lives. And then we realize, you know, I think I was really putting my trust in how I had fixed my life up for myself rather than really putting my trust in God. You know, James Edwards says something. He says, I, he's a biblical scholar. He says, ironically, the only place in the Gospels that we hear of Jesus sleeping is in the storm. This is the only time you read about Jesus asleep. He's in the middle of a storm. 
And you know what that suggests? The scene depicts his complete trust in his father in the midst of adversity. It's kind of like the preceding parables of the farmer who's really trusting in God's providential working as he plants the seed into the ground. If you were here last week, we talked about that, how the seed grows up, you know, how it's not all, that, it's not all dependent on us. As a matter of fact, our job is just to sow the seed. It's God's job to develop it. And we have to learn, you know, what's our responsibility and what's God's responsibility. And here's Jesus, totally asleep. He's relaxed. He's got total confidence. He's, he believes his life is in the, in the hands of his Father. His times are in the hands of his Father. And folks, I want to declare to you today, the time, your times are in God's hands. Your times are in God's hands. He knows every single life. He knows exactly how long you're going to live. He knows exactly the things that you're going to experience in this life. And you and I can have a confidence that he's going to see us through right to that point. He'll be with you through the whole journey. Now, some of us, as I've said, we've been to Israel. Now, I've been to the Sea of Galilee five times. And I've been to it at different situations. I've been to it when it's beautiful. We've been out there. It was idyllic, beautiful, sunny day. We stopped the boat. It's quiet. It's gentle. We sing. We praise. Last time I was there, it was miserable weather. It was raining. It was rough. It was not nasty. It was not nice. You know, I felt bad for that group because we went through kind of more of a stormy experience on the Sea of Galilee. But it wasn't like this storm. As a matter of fact, the Sea of Galilee is not a very big lake. It's just really a lake. It's almost 700 feet below sea level. But when you look at the topography of the land, you start out in the north, you have Mount Hermon. There's snow on that mountain. It's 9,200 feet above sea level. And it's only 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. What does that tell you? It's a tremendous drop from the Mount Hermon all the way down to the Sea of Galilee. As a matter of fact, I've already kind of described for you the picture. You have to look at the western slope of the lake as more of a hill sloping down. It's more of a gradual slope where the crowds could eat and listen to Jesus teach. But then as you come across the lake on the eastern side, you have this kind of a mountainous range. As a matter of fact, the Golan Heights are on that side. And the, the Golan Mountains or hills are on that side. And it's, you know... In that day, the water went further up towards the mountains. The, the lake has actually receded quite a bit. So we don't get quite an accurate picture of exactly what it was like when Jesus was there. But we get a picture of a funnel. And when the winds come, now you can imagine, you got the snow-topped mountain, right, with cold air, all of a sudden meeting hot air, because in the summertime it gets pretty hot in Israel, hitting the warm air, you have some very amazing storms. As a matter of fact, I would say to you in Alberta, isn't this true that, you know, you can have one of those blistering hot days and then all of a sudden the clouds come in and the rain comes in and the temperature really drops and what are we concerned about? Tornadoes, because that's the ripe description of how those things happen. By the way, that's exactly the kind of situation you're having here. This is like a tornado type of storm. This is like, you know, the Greek word for the squall is actually seismic. Yeah, but when you think of the word seismic, what word comes to your mind? Earthquake. So you already get an idea that this is not a natural storm. It's happening. This is really a dangerous situation. And these guys are on the water. And it's not just their boat. There are many boats on the water following Jesus. So they're all in the storm. That's an amazing thing. Now, I'm going to tell you, this was a real crisis. And what I find fascinating, and it's true of ancient peoples in the Mediterranean, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, the Romans, even the Hebrews, 
had a picture of life as a nautical voyage. And they saw life with a lot of uncertainty. You know, we live in a great technological age and we try to eliminate a lot of uncertainties. We can't totally eliminate them all, can we? But we sure try hard to, don't we? But in the ancient world, life was more fragile and life was far more risky and people didn't live as long and there was a lot more accidents. And so people saw life as this nautical voyage when you never knew what was gonna happen and all of a sudden it could be fair sailing, but boom, you could hit a storm and your life could be in jeopardy. And that was the picture of life. And that's why I read Psalm 107 earlier. And listen to what the scriptures say here. Uh, Psalm 107, this beautiful piece of poetry that describes life as this nautical experience. And yet there's a storm. The sea, they're out in the sea. They're, they're on the mighty waters. And they see the works of God, his wonderful deeds in the deep. And then God speaks. And he stirs up a tempest that lifts high the waves. And then they mount up to the heavens and went down to the depths in their peril. Their courage melted away. By the way, is this not what happened to the disciples? That they, their, their courage literally melted away. They became afraid. Now, I'm not criticizing them. Don't misunderstand. When your life is in jeopardy, you know, your courage could melt away, right? I mean, you're afraid. That's a normal human response to a threat to your life is fear. That's normal, Right? Come on now. And these guys were experienced people with boats. They were fishermen, some of them. Peter and John, they were fishermen. Andrew and, and James, they were fishermen. They understood this like they had been there before. They had been through some things. But this was a very dangerous experience, and they knew it. And, they, and it says their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits' end. They didn't know what to do. And so they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm. Let me ask the question. In Psalm 107, who stills the storm? God does. Yahweh stills the storm. I want you to hold that in your mind. This is important. Because these men who are fishermen know the Old Testament. These scriptures are ringing through their minds. Especially if you're a fisherman. Wouldn't you know the story? Of course you would. You would know that it was God who stills the storm. Who could hush the waves of the sea. Right? You see this? These people knew their Bibles. Not like most of us today. We don't spend time memorizing Listen, I've taught in India. These people memorize great tracts of literature. That's just the way they learn. They're into memory. That's how they learn. That's how Asians learn. And this is what these people did. They had the scriptures in their minds. They knew this text. That's important to know because when we read the story, it starts to make more sense. They knew this text of scripture. And it says, they were glad that it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. But we see the disciples, they wake Jesus up. But it's not in a prayerful thing. You know, they don't wake up Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, you got to wake up now. You know, don't you care that we're in trouble? You know, no, I don't think it's that way at all. I think this story is actually a parallel to another story. And I think Mark does this on purpose. Here's the other story. Another merchant story is the story of Jonah. How many remember Jonah the prophet? God spoke to him and said, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh, that wicked city. I want you to preach against it. And what does Jonah say? I don't want to do that. Now, why didn't Jonah want to go to the Ninevites? Because he was afraid of the Ninevites? No. He didn't want God to show them mercy. He knew that they were in big tight trouble with God. He knew God was going to judge them. And he knew if he went and preached and they repented, God would spare them. And he didn't want that to happen. So he said, I want those guys to really, you know, die in their own sin. So he got on a boat, it says, and headed in the other direction. But how many know it's hard to run from God? Try it. 
It doesn't work. If God has got your number, you're in trouble. Jonah pays, punches out the ticket, jumps on the boat, and it says, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Oh, we got another story with the ship ready to go down. And all of the sailors were afraid. This tells me this storm is pretty serious stuff when everybody on board is terrified. And it says, each cried out to his own God. So they were saying, you know, all the gods and all their names and all the things they could do because they're trying to, you know, really religion is people trying often to manipulate life in order to have a, a healthy sort of life. And so the, they were driven to manipulate all of their gods, appease them. But it wasn't working. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. And that didn't work. But Jonah, what did he do? He had gone below deck. And while, where was he? He was asleep. He had fallen into a deep sleep. Now, I think there's a contrast between Jonah's sleep and Jesus' sleep. I think Jesus' sleep is a sleep of absolute trust in his Father. Jonah's sleep is a different kind of sleep. How many know that when you're not doing what God wants you to do, you start experiencing some emotional dis disconnect and difficulty? Now, I'm not going to suggest that all depression is because we're disobeying God. I don't believe that. But I'm going to say that some depression is created because we're doing the wrong thing and it's affecting us emotionally. And one of the signs of depression is that we sleep overly too much. You know, you know in depression, you either can't sleep or, or else you can never find yourself. You're always tired. You're always fatigued. You're always sleeping. I think this was the fatigue of a disobedient person. He wasn't vitalized. So he's sleeping in the, in the bottom of the boat. And then the captain comes to him. Now, I don't think the captain came to Jonah and said, you know, come on, buddy, wake up. You need to get up on the deck. We may have to jump off the boat. I don't think he, he did that. I think the captain went to him and said, how in the world can you sleep? What do you mean down here sleeping? Our lives are in jeopardy. Do something. You know, the rest of us are praying. We're throwing the stuff overboard. And here you are doing nothing. He says, get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. And we read the story. Jonah goes up and they're, you know, doing all they can to save themselves. And Jonah goes, I know why there's a storm. And they go, they all stop and they go, why? I'm running from my God. What? Because these people are not like us. You know, we just go, oh, you're just a nut, an old kook. No, these people understand that, you know, they understood this idea of worship and religion and all the rest of it. And so when Jonah said this, they go, well, what'd you do to tick God off? Look what's happening around us. We're all going to die. Jonah goes, yeah, I'm the problem. And the only way you're going to get rid of it is get rid of me. Throw me overboard and things will work out for you. And the Bible says they kept doing other things to save themselves. And finally, they were so terrified and desperate, they couldn't see any way out of it. They finally said, oh God, forgive us. Picked up Jonah, threw him overboard. And immediately, it says, the storm stopped. And they got terrified. They went, whoa. He serves the God who controls the elements. And they began to worship the true God. It's an amazing story. I love that story. Well, let's, I think there's a parallel going on with the story here. Can you begin to see it? Jesus is asleep. The disciples come to him and they say, don't you care? In other words, they weren't being polite. They were being rude. How many know when people are in crisis, they're usually not polite? When people are upset, they're usually not polite. When people are fearful, they're usually not polite. This is not a prayer, folks. This is a complaint. Did they believe that Jesus could do anything? No. 
That's the answer. They did not believe. They were just upset that he could sleep through this while they were freaked out of their minds and scared. They wanted him, you know, they, they said, don't you care that we're going to die? And what does Jesus do? I love Jesus. He doesn't get excited about it. He just speaks to the wind and to the waves. How often in the Christian life we find ourselves in a crisis situation? When we're in that situation, we wonder and question, God, do you really care about me? You know, some of you thought that. We've all thought that. Probably somewhere in our journey. I don't understand why this is happening in my life. Didn't I serve you, God? Why are you allowing this to happen? When we're in the middle of the trial, all we can see is the difficulty and the pain and all the other realities seem to escape our gaze and understanding. You know, C.S. Lewis, I really like him. He, 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 uh, he lived a very interesting life. He was primarily a scholar. He was a bachelor. And toward the end of his life, the love of his life entered into his life. Her name was Joy Gresham, this beautiful American lady, very, uh, she was a writer, she was a thinker, you know, somebody of his equal. And they developed this amazing friendship, and he married her, and they had four amazing years together, and she died of cancer. And Lewis is beside himself. You know, one of my favorite movies of all time is Shadowlands. Anybody ever seen that? How many ever seen that movie? I cried. I watched it again. I cried again. I watched it again. I cried again. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not an emotional guy. This, this movie hits me with real impact. Lewis loses his wife. And, you know, he's trying to make sense of this reality. And he's honest. He's honest with his emotions. And he's writing in his journal. Isn't this beautiful? He's writing down his gut-level honest emotions. He had no idea that one day this journal would be published. And first of all, it was published under a pseudonym. But eventually... Later on, it was published, and it's the story of Lewis dealing with the grief of his wife, and the book is entitled, A Grief Observed. And in this book, he shares this, this amazing, uh, painful words. Listen to what he says. He says, when you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, speaking of God, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. Isn't that true? When life is good, we're having a great time, we're busy, we're so busy, we really don't have time for God sometimes. And don't tell me that doesn't happen. I've lived long enough to know this is a deep reality in our culture. He says, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. It just seems like, you know, in the middle of a good life, when you turn around and say, hey, God, I really thank you for it, it just seems like God's there for you. But then he goes on to say this, but go to him when your need is desperate. When all other help is vain. And what do you find, he says? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting. Yes, double bolting on the inside and after that silence. And you might as well turn away because the longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. What's Lewis saying? He's saying in your deepest sorrow, when you need God the most and you cry out to him, sometimes it feels like nobody's there. It feels like it's almost a cruel joke. It feels like, God, where are you? You know, don't you care about me? Aren't you going to speak into my situation? You're overwhelmed with pain, deep pain. This is what he's talking about. Now, a lot of people have taken that and said, well, Lewis had a hard time in his faith. <laughs> you know, people don't understand what real faith is. You can only feel disappointment with God when you really believe in God. Lewis felt it deeply. But later on, as you continue reading his journal, this is what he writes. He says, I've gradually been coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. Oh, something happened. Now Lewis is 
moving in his journey through grief and he realizes God is there. And now he thinks back to that moment when he felt the deepest, darkest. He felt abandoned by God. And he says this, Was it my own frantic need that slammed it in my face? The time when there's nothing at all in your soul except a cry for help may be just the time when God can't give it. Why? Because you're like the drowning man who can't be helped because he clutches and grabs. How many know that if you're swimming out to a man who's drowning and he's flailing away, that's a very dangerous moment. Do you realize that? That person can drown you, the rescuer. And what do you have to do? This is the hardest thing in the world. You have to wait. You have to wait until they stop struggling. And they start failing. And then you can grab them when they no longer are struggling and pull them to safety. He says, maybe the problem was I was in that state. I was so desperate. As a matter of fact, he says this. This is really interesting. He says, perhaps your own iterated cries deafen you to the voice you hope to hear. In other words, you're like the little child who is screaming at the top of their lungs and their parents trying to speak words of love and encouragement, but the child can't hear because of the noise the child is making. That's a powerful image, don't you think? I think that's a profound image. I think sometimes we're coming to God and we're screaming at the top of our lungs. God's trying to say something, but we can't hear it because we're making too much noise. That's what Lewis is pointing out. He says, by praising, I can still in some degree enjoy her. All of a sudden now, he's moving through it and he says, now as I begin to thank God, I'm beginning to realize, I'm reflecting on the memories and the beauty and the joy that God blessed me with this amazing woman. And then he says, and already in some degree, enjoy him. In other words, I've come back to the place where I can now begin to enjoy God again. I've moved through some of my grief. I think this is profound, folks. Now, let me move on to the second element. I took a long time because the first one is critical. I think we need to understand crisis. But you know, the second one is the calm he brings to us in our crisis. What happens next is absolutely amazing for us. You know, this miracle is demonstration of who Jesus is. He's not, he's not just a man. You know, he's more than a man. And as, and as Christians, we, we testify, we, we declare that you are whom? You are Lord. You are the God of the heavens. You are the creator. Paul, writing to the Colossians, he says this uh, in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, he rep he's, he's exactly what God's like. He's the image of the invisible God. Why? Because he's God in the flesh. He's the firstborn. Now the word firstborn there, it's not created. We don't believe Jesus is created. That word means he's preeminent. He's over all creation. As a matter of fact, in the next verse we can say this. Paul says, for by him. Who is he speaking? For by Christ all things were created. How many know if you're the creator, you have not been created Write that down. If you are the creator, you have not been created. It says, things in heaven and earth, visible and visible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Folks, you and I were created by Christ, and you and I were created what? For him. You are not created for yourself. You were created for a purpose. You were created for Jesus. He has a purpose in mind for your life. That's an amazing statement. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is what's holding our lives together. So what does Jesus do? They get up, they rebuke him. They basically say, don't you care? They're upset with him. Jesus gets up, doesn't even talk to them. He looks at the storm around him. He sees the other boats bobbing away. He knows that there's a crisis situation. And the Bible says, 
he rebuked the wind. And he said to the waves, quiet, be still. He does it. He commands them as if he's commanding a person. And the winds die down. And it's completely calm. How many know this is a little eerie? Because, I mean, one minute, you know, the, the sun has gone down. It's twilight. The storm is raging. I think it's dark. I think, you know, the boat is up. The boat is down. The water is in. People are wet. People are screaming. People are frantic. People are beside themselves. They're yelling at Jesus. He wakes up. He commands the storm to stop. And immediately, and it's still. I'll tell you. How many say that probably will get somebody's attention? Would that get your attention? This is not normal. Nobody expected this. This is supernatural. Isn't it amazing that Jesus can come into our situations and change them? Isn't it amazing sometimes that Jesus can come into our crisis and he can speak a word? And even though the crisis around us is raging, all of a sudden, you and I have perfect calm. We have a peace that passes human understanding. People are looking at us going, I don't get what's going on. How come you're not falling apart? How come you're not screaming? How come you're not angry? How come you're not rude? How come you're not mean? How come you're not coming unglued? Perfect calm. Amazing. It's an amazing thing. You know what, though? As he rebukes the wind, this, this text here, he says, Quiet, be still. The very words are used in chapter 1 when Jesus is speaking to a demonic person. He says to the spirit, be quiet, he said sternly. Come out of him. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. It's the same experience. Jesus is now showing. Mark is showing us that Jesus not only has authority over the demonic world, Jesus has authority over all creation when he calms the sea. It's an amazing thing. Who is this man? Who is this man? Wow. James Edwards reminds us in the Old Testament, God alone possessed power to quell natural storms such as this. In this story, Mark informs us that the same power and authority belong to Jesus. Now, let's go to the third element that impacts our understanding. Not just in times of crisis, not just how he brings calm in our crisis, but the great challenge he presents to us, he asks the question of us. What do we desire in life? Let me give you some things I like. Comfort, security, encouragement, promise, favor, blessing. How many are for those things? Anybody want some of those things? Absolutely. I got my name for those. I pray, I ask for this, for you, myself, my family, our church family, our city. I pray for our nation. I ask for these things. But you know what happens? We don't always get just those things. You know what we also get? Crisis, challenge, difficulty, distress, confusion. Don't those also come? We go, God, excuse me. What's the deal here? I'm praying for this. We're getting this. We have a hard time accepting that God in his goodness would allow problems and difficulties to come our way. But you know, he has a purpose for us. Remember I said he created us for himself, not for ourselves. We have to remember God has a purpose. So what's God's purpose for you? Well, let me remind us from the book of Romans, chapter 8. He says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. For those God, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son so that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is God doing? 
He's turning us into himself is the right answer. He's making us like himself. Do you know when God created humanity, we were made in the image of God. Sin comes in, mars the image. Now we come back to Christ. You know what he does? Starts undoing the damage. He's in the, restor- he's in the restoration business. He's in the makeover business. You know, all those programs, you know, I want a makeover, you know. It's not a physical makeover. It's not like he's giving us a new beauty treatment on the outside. It's not like he's remaking our house. He's remaking us. This is pretty good. You got the ultimate person, the creator, remaking us. But how he remakes us, how many know that, you know, sometimes when you're remaking things, you can actually do a lot of undoing before you can start doing. There's a lot of stuff that has to be destroyed in our life before he can build us back up. We don't like that part. You know, God knows just the right amount of difficulty, stress, challenge, problem, trouble, good experience, favor, blessing, answer to prayer, silence. He knows exactly the right mix to make you and me just like Christ. What he needs for you, Roger, what he needs for me, what he needs for Deanna, what he needs for Mark or Leroy, all look different. He's going to blend this up because he knows exactly what you and I need to make us look like Jesus. God's directing every event of our lives. He even watches over our sufferings, our sorrows that touch our life. As a matter of fact, I'm declaring to you today that you and I are in the boat and Jesus is in it too. He's riding the storm with you and I. You can have confidence. He's there. And he has authority over everything that's happening in our lives. You know, Kent Hughes reminds us that they had no way at that terrible moment of knowing it, but that miserable storm was a vehicle for teaching them about God and his power in their lives. The storm was essential to their spiritual development. That didn't happen by accident. Jesus, listen to me now, he never said or did anything that was not in compliance with the will of the Father. Do you know Jesus didn't say what he, he didn't just say his own words. He only said what the Father wanted him to say. Jesus didn't do anything. He only did what the Father wanted him to do. So when Jesus said, hey, we're going to the other side, that was the will of God. And so they got into the boat to go. But in the midst of doing the will of God, they ran into the storm. Interesting. You know, I get so tired of people saying, you know, Pastor, you know, I know that this is God's will because everything's working out. Really? You know, sometimes it's God's will and nothing is working out. I'm just being obedient to God. I'm just doing what he wants me to do, but all hell is broken loose. That can happen too, you know. Oh, I see, I feel such a peace about this decision. Ah, I tell you, you know, we're so funny as creatures. No, I said, is it in the book? Is it in the will of God? Is this what the word of God teaches? Well, you know, I feel like led of God to leave my husband and go with this other person. I have such a peace about it, Pastor. Hey, I've had people tell me that. You guys are looking at me like, really? And I go, well, sister, that ain't God. And the peace you're feeling, that's just your desire. You've got a peace because you've made a decision. And before, you were in agony about making it. Let me point out to you, you're making the wrong decision. Here's what the word of God says. Pastor, I'm not coming to you for counseling. That's okay. I'm not a counselor. Truth hurts, Mark says. Do you know, Jesus asks the question. I think he asks us the question. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Literally, Jesus is saying, why are you guys cowards? That's literally what he's telling, asking them. 
The issue always comes down to trust. Christ not only teaches us about God, but it teaches us about ourselves. That's the scary part, I think. How did we do? Did we trust or did we falter? It's easy to say that we would do such and such, but only the trial reveals the true condition of the heart. You remember Jesus is telling his disciples, yeah, I'm going to have to die. Oh, no, Peter says, Don't, you're not going to have to do that. Jesus rebukes him. You know, later on, you know, Jesus is saying, well, this is the night, guys. I'm getting ready. I'm preparing. And I'm going to die. Peter goes, hey, I'm going to die with you. Mark tells us this. Because, you know, Jesus... Sorry, Mark, Mark is actually getting his gospel through Peter, if you didn't know that. So Peter's telling Mark the story. He says, listen, Peter says, look, even if all fall away, I will not. So what is, what is Peter saying here? What's he really saying? I'm strong, but not only that, I'm better than everybody else. Because he says, even if the rest of them mess up, you can count on me, Jesus. And you know, Peter really meant it. I don't think Peter's a coward. Remember, Jesus said, you, you know, got a couple swords, bring them along. Peter is one of the guys wielding the sword. They get into the garden, the crowd comes to arrest Jesus. Peter, remember, he's going to die. He says, I'm going to die with you, Jesus. He's ready to die. He goes running up to this guy, swings, misses his head, cuts off the guy's ear. I think he was going for his head. I think he missed. Ear lops off. Jesus goes, Peter, put away your sword. Sorry, Lord. Peter, Jesus walks up, picks up this ear, brushes it off, sticks it back on the guy's head, and heals him. And then they arrest him. You know, and the Bible says they all fled. But notice how emphatic Peter is. You know, Jesus says to Peter, look, Peter, I know, what, I know you mean well, but I tell you the truth, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same thing, but now they're all fleeing. Now Peter remembers this. He goes, oh my God, I've got to get my act together. I, I've got to, you know, I'm the leader of this motley crew. He starts following Jesus from afar. Somebody lets him in. He's in the courtyard. A little girl comes up, serving girl says, hey, aren't you one of the followers of Jesus? Me? I don't even know the guy. You know, boy, tell you it's really falling apart isn't he and it doesn't just happen once he gets three times he messes up until finally it says in Mark's gospel again Mark said Jesus looked at Peter Peter caught Jesus's eye this is after the third time denying Jesus and he went on and wept bitterly that's a very powerful scene isn't it folks you and I never really know what we're made of until crisis hits oh I really love Jesus do we Wait till crisis hits us. You know, when it gets hard, that's when you find out what's really inside of you. You don't know what's inside of you. You could have more in you than you realize. God could be growing that seed, and you might rise up and surprise yourself. Go, wow, I didn't know that I'd, I'd have this kind of confidence in God. And then there's other times I go, God, forgive me. I thought I was a lot stronger than this. I'm so sorry I failed you, just like Peter did. He meant well. Isn't that true? Why is Mark telling us the story? Why is he telling this to the first century readers? You know why? They're being persecuted. They're in Rome. Nero's in charge. Christians are being put in jail. They're being burned, clothed with skins, lighting up the arena. This is not an easy time. What's Mark reminding them of? Jesus is in the boat. No matter how tough the storm comes, Jesus is there for you. He's reminding them of that. He's reminding us of the same thing. No matter how tough the storm is, I'm with you in the boat. You know, but Jesus questions. I'm just skipping a couple. Uh, well, 
Can you imagine what the disciples must have been thinking? What do you mean, why were we afraid? We're afraid because we're going to drown. We're afraid you didn't love us because you, if you loved us, you wouldn't let us, this happen to us. But Jesus' question to them has this thought behind. Your premise is wrong. You should have known better. I do allow people I love to go through storms. There's just no reason to panic. That's what you need to hear tonight. You can be in that storm. You don't need to panic. Jesus is in the boat. He has power over every situation. He's allowing this for a purpose. Let me move to the final element. I'll be real quick. And it goes like this. The consternation that comes after crisis. You know, I kept thinking, I've got to get a better word. But then I thought, this is the perfect word. You know, what does the word consternation mean? Paralyzing amazement or terror. Dismay. We can find ourselves at wit's end. To understand, why, 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 God? Why did you allow me to go through this terrible experience? We've got to stop asking that question, why? It just torments us. You know, I found that sometimes God doesn't give me an answer to that why question. He doesn't explain it to me. He doesn't feel obligated to do that. You know, I've gone through some experiences and I thought, forget it. I'm just going to forget about this experience. I have no understanding. And you know, years later, and sometimes it can be a decade. Sometimes it can be 15 years later. And I, have, I, I don't even know why I went through this thing. And then someone comes to me and they start sharing their story. And I go, ding, ding, ding. I now know why. Because God, who graciously helped me through that experience, has now given me some resources to speak into this other person's life. Words of hope and encouragement. That God will be faithful in that situation. Isn't that amazing? The terror that fell over these guys. You know, James Edwards says, ironically, the terror of the disciples at, that Jesus, at what Jesus had done exceeded their initial fear of the storm. Why? Why did they feel this way? You know? Well, he says the presence of the supernatural is more frightening to humanity than the most destruction, destruction, the most destructive of natural disasters. Isn't that true? You know, we can understand a storm. We can understand natural disaster, but when supernatural invades our lives, that's a little more spooky, isn't it? How do you explain this thing? You know, these guys were freaked out. I'll tell you why I think they were freaked out. They were freaked out because they knew the scriptures. And they knew Jehovah was the only one that could calm the storm. And I can see them. Jesus is over here and looking out the side of their eyes. They're looking over and they're saying to each other, who is this? Can you see that? Wouldn't you be a little bit afraid if all of a sudden you realize God was living among us in a human body? And all of a sudden you see a demonstration of his power? Wouldn't that kind of freak you out a little bit? These guys are afraid. This is not a normal person with us. This is God in the flesh. And it's scaring the bejeebers right out of them. I'm serious. They're terrified. They're scared. Do you know what? We want to have a safe God. We want to feel in control. And you know, C.S. Lewis, he has a neat way of communicating. He's writing in his children's stories. And I think sometimes as parents, the children's stories are the best stories because they teach us a whole bunch of stuff. And in that beautiful story in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. How many have probably seen the movie? Maybe you know the story. It's an interesting story. Lewis is writing for children to try to help them understand the kingdom of God. And he has these children in World War II fall through a wardrobe and they end up in another land. It's called Narnia. Narnia is this magical kingdom where everything comes alive and the creatures even start talking and 
In one scene or in the book or in the movie, you have these beavers and they're talking. And they're trying to explain to the three children about the king of Narnia. His name is Aslan. He's a lion. You know, you can see what, what Lewis is getting at. He's talking about Jesus. It's a type of Christ. He's painting this analogy of Jesus because Jesus is a lion. Read the Bible. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the conquering king. And so they're trying to explain to these kids about this king. And they said, Aslan is the king, and he's a lion. And one little girl like, pipes up. She goes, is, is he safe? Because, I mean, they're going about to meet this king, and he's a lion. And how many know a lion can be a very terrifying animal? Is he safe, she says. And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, you know. And what is he really, what is Lewis teaching us in that statement? God is not safe, but he's good. And you know what we want? We want to control God. We want a safe environment. We want to think that we're in control. And I want to declare to you tonight, we've never been in control. That's a total illusion. We have a God who's not safe. We have a God that's going to do stuff in our life that we didn't think was supposed to happen. It's out of our control. But what we have to come to terms with is, he's a good God. And he, what he's doing in our lives is for our good. Amen. Amen? Let's stand tonight. Maybe you're here tonight and you're in crisis. You know, I, I love this story because it reveals to us who Jesus is. It's a beautiful story. How many get an idea? He's all-powerful. He's all-powerful. And you can't control him. And he's scary all at the same time, but he's good. You know, and what am I saying to us? We can trust him. We can trust him in our troubles. We can trust him to know that he's in the boat with us. And though the storm around us is raging, and even though we can't see the end, and we can't figure out what to do, we're at wit's end like the sailors. I want you to know he's going to bring us to our desired haven. He's going to get us safely home. He's navigating the boat. Do you know what's saved? You know, the ship from going down in the day of Jonah, what did they do? They threw him overboard. He had to, in a sense, die. Figuratively, he was swallowed by fish and raised back to life, right? He had to die in order for them to be saved. How many are getting a picture now? Mark is giving this illusion. Jesus is going to have to die in order to save us in the boat. Did he do that? Did Jesus die for us? Jesus revealed us great love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ commended his love for us. What did he do? He died for us. We should settle that question once and for all. You should say to yourself, my God loves me. He loves me with an everlasting love. He loves me so much he died for me. I should never, ever have to ask that question, do you love me, God? It should be a settled issue. And even though I go through storms and challenges and difficulties, even though I may not feel safe, even though I may feel terrified at times, what I'm experiencing, I want to declare to you, he's a good God. He loves you deeply. He knows what's happening in your life. He can bring the calm out of the greatest storms that a sailor soul. He's going to bring us to our desired end. He's bringing us home, folks. We're on this boat together. He's bringing us home. He's going to get us there safely. We can have that deep assurance. But maybe you're here tonight. You said, Pastor, it's amazing. You know, I had people in the first and second service today say, you know what? God was speaking to me. You know, this is not just man's word. These are the words of the living Christ. 
Thank you tonight. 